All right, so uh, I hope you guys had a good break. My family, we had planned to have a good break, but then we didn't because we all got sick. But it wasn't COVID, so that was good. Um, I still kind of sound sick. I think we all need to have shirts that say, like, I'm sick, but I don't have COVID or something like that. Um, and I did get my first, my first ever COVID test, like, two weeks ago. And it was a home test. And I will tell you, do not let Courtney Tate test you for COVID because she will murder your nose, okay? Um, so just FYI, heads up on that. Um, but we steered clear of that. And, uh, but still kind of sounds sick. I mean, everyone sounds sick right now because it's that cedar stuff that comes in. Um, so we're all playing with fire. We know that, right? We're all playing with fire. Um, so it is good to see you guys, though. Hope you guys had a good break, relatively speaking. And uh, we decided to kick off the new year by starting a series in the book of Judges. And this book is kind of dark and depressing, kind of like January. So we decided to say Happy New Year by going through the book of Judges. That's our plan. Now, listen, um, uh, I think I told this, just full disclaimer, um, we did a series back in the summer called From the Heart, and, uh, and we were kind of picking just different topics and stuff. And I actually did uh, this message back in the summer, not knowing I was going to be doing a series on Judges in January. I wouldn't have picked that, that, that uh, passage. But let's be honest none of you guys remember that talk, do you? That was like in August. It was in early August. You guys were still on vacation. Or if you weren't on vacation, your brain was still on vacation, right? So, um, so that was a long time ago. And, um, and even as I was reading it, I was like, man, that's some pretty good stuff. Like, I forgot that I wrote that, you know? So there's no way that you remember the talk from last August. Um, but anyway, so, uh, but so this first part will be kind of a review of, of the first chapter of, of Judges. Um, whenever, we read, whenever we read the Bible, the stories in the Bible can kind of seem distant to us, and we can find it hard to relate sometimes to these Old Testament stories. Um, but then we start to see these parallels between, like, what Israel does and how we live and how we operate. So, um, give you some background of the book of Judges. Uh, the Israelites, remember they were enslaved in Egypt, and they were set free by God. And then Moses, the leader of the people, he disobeys God, so he's not allowed to go in the promised land. You remember that part of the story? And so they wander in the wilderness for about 40 years or so. And then Joshua, the next person to lead Israel, leads them into Canaan, the promised land. And uh, so Judges is like a transition book between Joshua's death and the rise of the first king. So you're going to see a cycle in the book of Judges. That's why I put on the screen here. You see like this cycle of idolatry and repentance, idolatry and repentance on my title slide. And there's this cycle in the book of Judges where the people rebel and then God gets angry. But his anger, of course, comes from his love for these, these people. They're then oppressed by the enemies. And then the people repent, quotation marks, because it's kind of like false repentance. And then there's salvation through a chosen judge. And then God brings peace. And then the judge dies. And then the same thing happens all over again. It's just a cycle over and over again. And uh, so you'll see that cycle throughout the whole book. The purpose of the book, it's written to show the consequences of unbelief, but also disobedience. And uh, you'll see a lot of tie-ins to our walk with God, I think, as we go through the book. Now, God commanded the Israelites 
to drive out the Canaanites, uh, but they disobeyed. And so many people struggle, of course, with the idea that God would command Israel to take out other nations. And it sounds like if you grew up in the church and you're like five or six and you hear stories, you're like, yeah, God told the Israelites to conquer the Canaanites. Then as you get to be like a teenager, you're like, wait, what? What did he tell the Israelites to do to the Canaanites? And you start to think, you know, a little bit differently. And you start to wonder, like, why would God and how could God tell the Israelites to drive out these people? If you start thinking of modern-day parallels to that now, which sound awful, it, it really starts to make you question, like, how can you trust this Bible? How can you, how can you trust this God that we say we worship? But I want you to think about this, because this is a hard thing to think of. I could do a whole talk on this topic. So why would God have the Israelites drive out the Canaanites from that land? Well, I guess the bigger question you have to ask is, does God ultimately have the right to judge evil? That's kind of the bigger question. Because if you read about the Canaanites and the things that they were doing to people, even their own people, they believed in child sacrifice. They had all kinds of rituals that were awful, and they were committing horrible evil to other nations as well. And so that's the first question you have to ask is, does God have a right to ultimately judge evil? That's the first question you have to answer. And then God knew that if Israel didn't take out these people, that they would fall to the same idolatry that the Canaanites were espousing. And they eventually did fall to that kind of idolatry. But here's the other part of the equation, is that God would often use other nations to judge Israel. So whenever Israel would sin and do horrible things, like other nations would, God used the pagan nations to judge them and bring destruction upon them. And it's funny how nobody really likes to argue about that. Like, that's totally fine, right? For some reason. And uh, so people ask the question, how can a good God tell Israel to destroy the Canaanites? But people also ask the question, how can a good God allow so much evil to exist in this world? Why doesn't he just destroy evil? So I want you to keep that in mind, because sometimes our questions can contradict one another. One minute we ask why God doesn't, you know, handle evil in the here and now and destroy all wickedness and evil in the here and now. But then when he does, we question that as well. And we say, well, how can God be good? He, he's, he's judging or bringing condemnation upon these people. So God tells Israel to drive out the Canaanites, but they don't fully obey what God says to do. And so now they're living among these people, and then suddenly the idols of Canaan start to look appealing to them. And it's not a real surprise because the Canaanite religion was very sexual in nature. They had uh, priests and priestesses that worshipped Baal, this this God that they worshiped, or many gods that they worshiped. They even had temple prostitutes. And so those things would take place inside their temples. And you can imagine the people of Israel, as they get to know this other nation, they start to think, well, that sounds a lot better than what happens in our temples. And so they start being led astray into idolatry because of what is happening there in these Canaanite temples. They combined worship with pleasure, and this, of course, would not be a hard sell to the Israelites, right? As they think about what this religion would entail. So this, the last, what's interesting is the last verse of Judges 
summarizes the entire book. So we're going to go to the last verse first, and it says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When people do what's right in their own eyes, they commit horrible evil. You're going to be blown away by the evil that you see Israel commit in this book. How can the people of God that have all of this knowledge, all of this revelation, they have the temple, they have God dwelling with them, they have seen a physical manifestation of his presence for hundreds of years. Many of them have seen miracles firsthand, and yet how can the people of God do such things and turn their back on God? And many of you may may face similar questions. How can people in the church commit such evil? How can people in the church who who grow up with all of this knowledge and, and have all this privilege in many ways spiritually, but just say reject it and completely turn their back on God? We see the same thing happen here in the nation of Israel. And listen, for you and for me, some are going to be tempted to walk away from your faith based on what you see in the church. But here's what's interesting about this book of Judges, is that none of this surprises God. I find it intriguing that God put a book as dark and depressing as Judges in the Bible, because there's not much good about it. Because it's ultimately going to point us to the grace and mercy that we need to find in the cross of Jesus Christ. But I think what it also says to us is that, that none of this surprises God. God, God doesn't choose to, to hide the evil of Israel. God doesn't hide the evil of his people. He lets us see all of it. And, and it's unedited. And, and it gets very dark and very depressing and I find, it, I find it strangely encouraging that God put this book in the Bible because I think it helps us navigate and wrestle with sin that we see in ourselves, but also sin that we see inside the church. And uh, so turn to Judges chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 3 starting off. Again, we can see many parallels between our spiritual lives and the spiritual life of Israel. And so today is about half-hearted discipleship. So Judges chapter 1, verse 1. It says, after the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. So let's recap this passage real quick. So Joshua dies, leader of the people, the second leader of the people behind Moses. And now the people of Israel are inquiring of God. So who's going to go up first? What tribe is going to go up first against the Canaanites to fight against them? And then God says the tribe of Judah is going to go first. And he says, I have given the land into his hand. So Judah's going to go up first. And then what does Judah do? The tribe of Judah turns to the tribe of Simeon. These are not the actual people like Judah. These are like the tribes that are conversing here. And Judah says to Simeon, come up with me into the territory allotted to me so we can fight against the Canaanites together. And then whenever it's your turn, we're going to help you. Now, this seems like not a big deal, but why 
is this a big deal? Because what did God tell the tribe of Judah to do? He said, you are going to go up. And so I've given this, these people into your hand. You're going to go up. But what do they do? They turn to their, their, the other tribe, their brother tribe, and they ask them to join them. Now, why do you think they might do that? Well, they're afraid. They lack faith. They don't believe. Listen, disobedience always comes from unbelief. Disobedience always comes from a lack of faith. It's never just, well, I just made a mistake, or I just, I just did it. I don't know why I did it. It always comes from unbelief and a lack of faith. So here's some characteristics of a half-hearted disciple. Disobedience in the small things. Small disobedience can carry big consequences. I know that you can think of examples in your life where you've done something that you think is fairly small and insignificant, but it just began to balloon and get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And now you're telling lies and cover-ups, and the whole thing is just now this monster. And so disobedience in the small things is a characteristic of a half-hearted disciple. So where do we make compromises? Where do we allow sin to have a foot in the door? Where do we coddle our sin? Where do we refuse to put sin to death? Where do we let it begin to crack open the door? So even though Judah doesn't fully obey, God still gives them the victory in his grace. And now in Canaan, every city had its own king. And after conquering this one city, the the text goes on to say that this one king escapes. And the tribe of Judah, they chase after him. And when they capture him, instead of killing him, they do something kind of strange. The text will say that they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. Now, why would they do that? Well, you understand, like, you can't, like, do you ever think about, like, how important your thumb is? Like, you cannot do much without your thumb working with the rest of your fingers, right? You can't hold a sword if you're a king in battle back then. Um, And your big toe is a lot more important than you might think it is. Anybody here ever stubbed your toe or messed up your toe in some way? Just, just one of your toes, right? Um, so this is not confession time, Sam. No, raise your hand. He's getting vulnerable in the front row, and he, everyone behind him is laughing, right? So, um, but I think of the, one of the funniest injuries to me, whenever they talk about it, is whenever they have, like, these NFL players, and they're like, all right, this guy, he's out of uh, commission this week. He has a torn ACL. This guy has a torn Achilles. Um, this guy has a torn labrum. And this guy has turf toe. And turf toe, it just sounds like not that serious, right? But it ends up being kind of a big deal for these, these multi-million dollar athletes because you and I both know to run on a field or a basketball court You've got to have your big toes. It's the last toe that leaves the ground when you run. And if it's hurting, you can't do much. Like, you need your big toes. So back then, if you're in battle, 
and you're trying to like show mercy in an odd way to someone and not kill them, you just want to, you know, incapacitate them so they can't fight against you anymore, they'd cut off their thumb and their big toe. That's what they would do. And that's what they did to this guy. So, um, so in, in a weird way, it was kind of a mercy that they spared his life, but then they also cut off just those, those parts of his body. And then in Judges 1-7, it says this. The guy's name was uh, Adonai Bezek. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. So what's strange is this king who has his thumb cut off and his big toes cut off, he kind of gets it. He understands, like, I had it coming to me. I've done this to many other people before, other kings. <coughs> and so I think I kind of deserve this, right? And uh, so he understands that this is the, his fate. Now, um, we're going to see a pattern in Scripture where God gives people over to the consequences of their sin. And that's now happening to this king where he, he's not reaping the consequences of what he's done to many other, other leaders of other countries. Skip down to Judges chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, And the Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Now, at first, the passage looks positive. It says God's with them. It says that they get the victory. But then it says they could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain, because they had chariots of iron. Now, did God know they had chariots of iron when he told the Israelites to drive these people out? Of course he did. Did, um, can you think back to what other enemy in Israel's history had chariots of iron? A little south of Israel, it's a place called Egypt, and we know God took care of the Egyptians whenever they needed him to do that. And uh, so the next characteristic is someone who is too scared to take risks. So God calls Israel to be strong and courageous when the odds are stacked against them, and he calls you and I to do the exact same thing. You see, true discipleship means that we take risk. And listen, I know that where we live today, especially in this part of the country, some call it the Bible Belt. I'm not sure how applicable that name is anymore. But um, for some reason, we have begun to see following Jesus as like safe. Like it's a safe thing to do. And it's also partly why many of you want to reject it. Because it feels like a safe thing to do. And you don't want safety. You want risk. You want excitement. You want risk. And so this is why some of you are living how you're living now. Because you're in your heart, you're just like, I don't want that. I want to rebel against that. Because I don't want that. I don't want to be seen as safe. And, and you see Christianity as just safe. Because that's what, in, in some ways, how it gets presented to people for some reason. But if you think about the Christian faith throughout history, following Christ has never been safe. And it shouldn't be seen as safe. Even in our culture here, right now, it should not be seen as a safe thing to do. Following Christ, in most places and times, has always been extremely dangerous. Now, I'm not talking about you you know, mustering up some courage, like in your own strength, you know. But this is about putting your faith in God's strength. I think of when Paul says, in my weakness, I'm made strong. I think of that principle. 
you know, uh, in my situation, I always find that, that as you kind of age, you start to view your faith as a safe thing. And you start to take less risk. Like when I, once you get married, once you have kids, you start thinking about like all those parameters, all those different things. And, and you, you kind of start to turn inward and think, well, I'm not going to risk things because I don't want to endanger myself or endanger other people or endanger my family in any way. And when it comes to like living out your faith in a bold way. And I, and I can sense that in myself sometimes. I have to repent and turn from that. But where are you too scared to take risks? And we're not talking about a, like a faithless bravery, but a courage that's based on faith. Look down at Judges chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, When Israel grew strong, they put Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So instead of obeying God and driving them out like they're supposed to, the Israelites decide to make the Canaanites slaves. Now, why? Well, convenience. And so the next principle is convenience over obedience. They did what was convenient to them. And listen, sin is always more convenient. I can't think of any scenario where when presented with two options, which is like the sinful option or the the non-sinful option, the sinful option is always going to look more and seem more convenient. And this is what they do here. It's always more convenient than obedience. And if it wasn't, we wouldn't do it, right? And so you're going to see this statement all throughout chapter 1. And Israel did not drive out the inhabitants. Go all the way over to Judges chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, where it says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenants with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So God commands them to drive out the Canaanites and to tear down these altars, but they, of course, disobey. But even in their sin, look at this angel reminding them of God's grace and God's faithfulness to them back in Egypt. Think back to uh, verse, chapter 1, verse 19, where it said they could not because they had chariots, but this angel says, but you would not. So the next principle is saying I can't when it's really I won't. So where in your life are you saying I can't, but it's really I just won't. I don't want to. What areas does God want to change you, but you think change is impossible? You know, the real issue is our refusal, our refusal to obey. I think of how this happens in relationships, how it happens in not forgiving someone, <coughs> how it happens in being deceptive or telling the truth, how it happens in sexual temptation. The real issue isn't I can't, but it's I will not. I, I, I choose not to do this. Tim Keller, in one of his books on Judges, says God sees that any failure to obey is a failure to remember. So this is why God reminds him of what happened back in Egypt, because God is the God of, who rescues and so the root of disobedience is failing to remember who God is and his character. And that's true for us, I think, as well. Skip down to verse, uh, verses 3 through 5, where it says, 
So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their God shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. So the angel says, you know, you want to live among idols? Well, you're going to get what you want. We've discussed this many times. We discussed it in our last series on relationships. Whenever we chase after sin, very often God gives us exactly what we want. And that might be the worst thing for us. But when we chase after sin in a very intentional, purposeful way, God often will give you just what you want, and you will think, well, see, this is meant to be. This is God's will. I'm getting what I want. And what you don't realize is the path of destruction that you're carving for yourself. And that's God's way of handing us over. And so God hands his people over to this idolatry. And what happens with them when they hear this news, that they're being handed over to the idolatry, that they are, are so intentional about pursuing, well, they start to weep. They get upset. They wail, and, and they start sacrificing. Okay, God, we're going we're gonna to get spiritual. And I think whenever we're confronted with our own sin, we often do the exact same thing. We're, okay, God, okay, I, I'm going to get spiritual. Let, let, me, let me do this. Let me do that. Let me go to church. I'll be part of this group. And meanwhile, there's no real heart change on the inside. That's what's happening to the people of Israel. And so spiritual activity becomes this facade to keep us from having to really deal with what's happening on the inside of the heart. And so here's the last principle. It's confession without repentance. It's confession without repentance. Now, confession is to admit something is sin, but repentance is to turn away from it like a 180-degree turn, to turn away from that sin. I think many of us, we, we confess, but we don't repent. And they're not the same thing. So are, are we grieved by sin? Do we realize that our sin is a violation of a relationship and not just breaking some rule? You, you can't really repent and turn from sin unless you really, truly realize what you're turning away from, that you're you're breaking a relationship, this relationship with God, whenever we sin against him. So we're going to see the, this tension throughout the book of Judges, that God promises to give Israel this land, but he also promises not to give it if they're disobedient. And so it's, there's going to be this tension we walk as we go through the book. I think we can, we can feel the same tension in our walk with God in some way, because we're saved by grace. It's this free gift offered to us. And he offers it to us as a free gift. But that does not mean that we get to walk in disobedience to him. In like blatant disregard for him. That is not what free grace means. It's not what being saved by grace means. And if we do that in this real purposeful, intentional way, it might show we haven't really received the gift. And so how do we resolve this tension, what's resolved at the cross, at the cross ultimately. I love this uh, quote by uh, Keller once again. He says, without the gospel of Christ crucified, we will always either complacently give in to sin or live under a burden 
of guilt and fear. And you will find yourself in that tension, that, that point of tension a lot in your own life. The cross is where we find the tension resolved. So we are able to live forgiven, obedient lives, despite also living sometimes sinful, disobedient lives. The cross is the place where we find the freedom to accept ourselves without being proud and to challenge ourselves without being crushed. So right now, you guys are going to go to your breakouts for the first time in like two months, right? Give a hand to breakouts. We love breakouts. Yes, we like breakouts. 